Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I think it's an aspect of my work that shows up a lot that we often think of as paralysis or not really knowing what to do or inaction. And I believe that is the slippery slope of losing your soul. And if we can try or like I like to say try to try, that action but is deeply rooted in who we are as beings and we can take that risk, that isn't losing your soul, it's trying. And I think that's, that to me is what leadership is about and why I'm happy to be here today. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the program. I am so excited for our guest. She is a friend of mine, colleague. We've known each other, gosh, going on. Kindergarten, first grade. <laughs> I'm a little bit older than that, Jess. So I've got to go back to, it was 2013. I know the year, it was 2013 is when we first met. Uh, so what is that now? It's 2022. So, hey, going, we're one year shy of 10 years that uh, that we've known each other. Uh, so uh, to introduce Jess, I got I to gotta ask some questions for our audience here. So are you, audience member, overwhelmed by all things swirling around you in the world today? Would you like to have less frustrating conversations? Are there topics or language that make you nervous about even engaging some of these conversations? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you're definitely listening to the right show today and you're going to love our guest. If you answered no, you might have some denial issues. Our speaker today, our guest here, uh, Jess Pettit, she's been stirring up difficult conversations for over a decade performing as a stand-up comic. She speaks on stage as a diversity expert and helps teams move from abstract to action. So of course we love that practical angle. And uh, when she's not doing all of those things, she's also an author. She's written a book called Good Enough Now and uh, helps organizations on all of these kinds of topics related to leadership, diversity, tough conversations. Uh, there are so many different directions we can take our time today that I know this is gonna be a valuable use of my time anyway, and I hope for everybody else. I learn something every single time we talk. Jess, Jessica Pettit, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Whoop, whoop, whoop. And, and Thank the you. crowd went wild. Ah, amazing. Thank you. Thank so you. you now you also, oh, it's, it's absolutely my delight to have you. So you also say that when you're not traveling the country and, and working that uh, you, you have a pug lab mix named Leo. Is that right? That is true, and he will probably be banging his way in the door while we are recording because he does not care. Oh, I love it when the pets make an appearance on the show. I, I'll feature them. If they want to talk and answer a question, they're always welcome. And you you also enjoy Johnny Cash cover bands, apparently. I do. I do. See, I've already learned something new. I did not know that. Nine years in, I did not know that you're a Johnny Cash cover band person. I love Johnny Cash doing covers, and I love people doing covers of Johnny Cash. Both, of both directions. Wow. That's 
See, and that's why you're a, a diversity speaker or expert is because you just, you can handle it from every direction. That's true. It's true. You are joining us from where? Eureka, California. For those who don't know, tell us where the heck Eureka, California is. It is the east side of Japan. <laughs> the east side of Japan uh, on the on the U.S. side. I am on the water, technically like 47 miles from Oregon, but it takes about three hours to drive that if the road is open and there's not a mudslide. And I'm about seven hours north of San Francisco. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're here. In the Redwoods. Welcome. And believe welcome. it or not, occasionally we have internet. <laughs> and it even works. It's working great today. So Jess, we're going to get into all of the, the fun topics that you have so much expertise around, and, and I want to explore those with you. But before we do that, I want to ask you if you could, as you think of yourself as a leader in whatever capacity, whatever that word means to you, take us back. What is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? You know, it's funny because uh, I think in this profession, we get asked these questions all the time. And my, I don't know if it's a habit of always being an outlier or something, but uh, whether it's a leader or thought leader, those kind of languages, I always reposition it, maybe like I just did with Johnny Cash. But I don't think that I'm a thought leader. I think I make leaders think. And I don't know that I have ever not been a leader um, I am certainly a joiner, and by virtue of being a joiner, I try to be a follower and usually end up leading because I notice something not being done, someone not being served, someone not being represented. So my voice has always been really looking for kind of the holes in the Swiss cheese while mm -hmm. joining the dairy products. Right, can you recall any... As you think about that joining, and I empathize with that, I, it makes a lot of sense, the joining and then seeing needs and then choosing sure. to be influential oh. or serve those needs. Like what are some, one example from earlier, earlier sure. in your life? hundred percent. So sixth grade, is that early enough? So sixth grade, braces, 24 hour headgear, spiral perm and sparkly lilac eyeshadow, because that's what the 17 magazine said was good. Uh, we're back in sixth grade, so it's 1986, and one of our theater speech class, one of our assignments was to do an interview of a famous person. And most of the people in the class chose people who were dead, so they used magazines, and if they were alive, they used like People Magazine or something. So I grew up in Plano, Texas, and this guy had just moved to the outskirts of town, and he had started some new business called EDS. And uh, there was lots of articles about him in the paper because he also had like a longhorn farm. And this is kind of in the middle of suburbia. So he's a very, very eccentric human being. So his name was Ross Perot. So I thought I would do my interview with this guy, right? I don't know who he is, but he's all over the papers and he's close. So every day after school, I rode my bike to his like acreage and rang the little doorbell intercom thing at his big gate and they never would let me in. I'd do it again, I'd do it again, I did it again, did it again, did it again, and finally he let me in. So I rode my bike up to Ross Perot's front door. I told, not him, but somebody who answered the door, the assignment I had for class, and that I want to interview him because he was a new neighbor and it, it seemed interesting. Turned away, did it again, kept coming back until eventually I got to sit with Ross Perot in his living room. Did and you I really? So, in interviewing him for the paper. And again, please notice, I don't think I'm doing anything extra. 
I'm just doing the paper, right? I think any of the kids today would say, that's a little extra, Jess. Well, me today, ride my bike, what? No. So then, um, so I'm interviewing him, right? And I'm asking him whatever questions in sixth grader would with my headgear, please keep in mind. So while I'm doing this, he's talking about his company and how one of his aspirations for his company was putting in computer labs into schools. And I was like, well, my school doesn't have a computer lab. And he's like, well, you know, we'll, and I was like, no, you just said that was one of your aspirations. So do I need to give you my principal's number? What do I need to do? So then the next day I rode back with like my principal's information on it because I had gone to the principal's office and I'm sure my principal thought I was complete lunatic. And um, not only did our school end up getting one of the first computer labs and it's a pretty resourced school district. So um, because it was such a resourced school district and we were already slated to get one, I then challenged him to do five different computer labs in lower income areas on the other side of the tracks. So six computer labs happened because I am an overachiever. That is so cool. <laughs> oh, I love that story. Every time we talk, Jess, every time. That is so fun. Uh, I have a, a Ross Perot. I never met Ross Perot. When he ran for president, uh, he was the independent candidate when he, third party candidate when he ran for president. I was in college at that time. You and I are the uh, same age, apparently, given the age and placement of your uh, sparkly eyebrows. Was it eyebrows or eyelashes? Eyeliner. 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 Forgive me. Forgive me. You can tell I am not an <laughs> Four sisters. I am not an expert in these things, nonetheless. And uh, yeah. Oh, that is fantastic. So you got Ross Perot to give six schools total? Six schools. Mm -hmm. Computer and, labs. Pure, um, pure, pure persistence. Persistence. And I think... I think one of the things that my parents died when I was relatively young, but I think one of the things they really instilled me with, which again, I did not know this was called leadership, but nobody said I couldn't do it. So if, I'm a rule follower, but if you don't tell me what the rules are, then why not? Why would, why not do that? Like I was sitting in his living room. So why not make the connection? Now, I'm also a big connector person, right? But I also think without knowing the language at the time i realized our high school would our middle school high school junior highs like our school district was so well resourced that not only did i get it for us but then i was like well there's so many other schools that have even less stuff than we do and i'm sitting in his living room right welcome so to the neighborhood maybe i'm opportunistic um i don't know but and i don't know i don't remember that being new for me yeah. at all yeah. Well, there's a principle there too of that you're you're drawing out, which is the the limits that you didn't put on yourself that you didn't perceive were there. And so you you went for it. Why not? And how often do we have those opportunities that we self-limit? Right. Which now, right, running our own businesses, things like that, there's a million times where I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. And so kind of same process is there a rule in place no there is not a rule in place all right well good to go so we I, oh go ahead I didn't mean to well I was, I was gonna say that i think that gets into what it is you do and some of your genius that you bring to the work that you do that i have, i have appreciated over the years is the way that you're able to a talk about things that for some people are touchy or difficult subjects 
and you help other people be able to talk about those things and and overcome some of not rules but some of the perceived barriers or reluctance to some of those discussions and so i'm wondering if that's a just a, a flow through or if that's something that you've cultivated or both I, I would go with it has to be both because in order for it to be something i cultivated i think i'd have to have identified that and risk relevance right is the kind of balance i'm always kind of dealing with and helping other people deal with whether that's in relationships or negotiations or conversations or whatever and where risks comes in is the unknown or going against what is known that's that's risk and so uh you know my partner and i we handle risk very differently and um i actually think i'm a pretty risk avoidant person um but i'm optimistic and i think i can weigh the information out a little bit more and i'm a little bit better with the unknown um but the flip side, my partner is risk avoidant and is actually much better with abstract ideas. So mm. I will take a risk to find out the information so that I can know. And then once I know, then I can go, right? Like the reward is the knowing. Um, I'm not very comfortable with the, with the lack of knowing. Um, so if I've cultivated anything, it's the balance between why do I need to know and what do I do when I don't know, um, which usually involves me making a decision or leaning on other people to do that, which I think is who, going back to soul, that's who I am, is weighing out, why do I need to know this? Why don't I know this? Does somebody else know this information? And then how, and does, how do those two connect together and what's the distance between the two of them? Some of what you're getting at there, it strikes me is so vital to the leadership conversations that are some of the tougher conversations. So the different kinds of risk that you just got at, uh, you're talking about you and your partner. So there's your risk that you are unwilling to deal with is I don't want the risk of not knowing. Mm -hmm. I've got to know. Now, other risks, maybe I'm not as comfortable with, but I have got to know. And that willingness to dive in and hear and listen and create a space where you and everyone else in the conversation can know is so important from a leadership perspective that it, and, and I just, that strikes me as one of your superpowers. I don't know if you think about it that way, but. I, I appreciate it. I mean, I think we kind of put a ganache layer on our weaknesses, right? So if, if that's kind of the underbelly articulation of how I lead my life, what I call it is curiosity. Yeah. And there are times where I've stuck my nose in something I really shouldn't have. And maybe I learned that in time before I lose my nose. Um, and other times it's led to really amazing opportunities. I would never have known I could have connected. And yeah. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and asking the right questions. Um, so I call that curiosity. And what it really is, is taking care of my own anxiety managing my own risk taking and seeing what's relevant in the the known information i do have access to so we've got several principles already from what you said <laughs> opening, opening the show and just learning a little bit about you but there's try to try there's persistence keep showing up show up with curiosity uh do the work to know it, there's no risk in knowing at least 
less risk in knowing and a lot more risk with the unknown if we don't know. We can take all of those principles and start applying them to some of the conversations that that you have expertise in that you're you know, bringing to the table and helping organizations and leaders with every day. Are there any other principles? And I want to get into the practical yeah. application of these, but what would be some of the other like, hey, as we're showing up to have some of these tough conversations, we're getting into these practically here in just a minute around DE&I and frustrating people and polarization and all of this good stuff. But are there any other principles that we want to be coming to the table with? Absolutely. So I believe in uh, the two opposing emotions can happen at one time, right? So mm -hmm. I was entered into this knowledge from kind of a Buddhist way of thinking. And I, I try to pair things together because sometimes it's a boundary of what's too much and what's too little. Um, so this isn't, I'm, I'm wiggling my hands back and forth, but this kind of, uh, the, a little bit of this and a little bit of this balance, which is always imbalanced, but the, the struggle of that, I think, is really being self-reflective and responsible for yourself. So if curiosity, which I just told you, is kind of the ganache layer of like, oh, I don't know, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should ask this question. Um, I think it gets paired with generosity. Mm. Me being generous is one thing, but I cannot do this 100% of the time, David. But they are also being generous in their, their way, which sometimes is harder for me to interpret. But if they are being generous and I'm being generous, then we can both be safely curious. But when generosity gets taken away and space for someone else to be, this is the language I use is how someone is showing up right now is how their life taught them to show up right now. Um, I, I give myself that grace too. So curiosity and generosity are very closely linked together. And then the other set, so if, if I, I'm, I'm like building out, this is a great cupcake. Cause there's like so many, there's like gooey center and fillings and stuff. We've got so ganache and fillings and all I know. kinds of things. Sprinkles stuff. are next. So if, if, uh, if curiosity and generosity is now one side, then the other side is authenticity and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Because you can be vulnerable and inauthentic and you can be authentic and very closed off. Yes. So then how do those two things balance authenticity, authenticity and vulnerability? How do they balance with the balance of curiosity and generosity? That literally is the work that I do. Um, yes, I tell people that it has a diversity lens to it because that's kind of the box it gets shoved into. And I that's not wrong. Sure, I'll do it. Um, but I also find my other DEI colleagues, this is where they get a little stumped because I don't really want to do the vocabulary and the training and the, the exact rules. Now you'll never be offensive. I don't think that exists. So what I want to do is flip it backwards and like, how did your life teach you how to be? Who and how are you with other people? So when we start talking about being a leader without losing your soul, how could you possibly lead yourself or anyone else without knowing who and how you are? That's the real scary work. Taking the, the actual real look inside at who and how you are. Good, bad, ugly, and awesome. And which is all, all of the above is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And having that awareness, you know, as you're talking, you were talking about authenticity and vulnerability uh, and the, the pairing of those. And I was reviewing all of the shows from last year, 2021. Mm 
And I, maybe some exceptions, but almost without exception, I think every guest that I spoke with, didn't matter what topic we were talking about, eventually made its way to a conversation either about authenticity or vulnerability. Sure. Uh, I mean, if any, you have maybe not met you, but you can't talk to you without talking about authenticity and vulnerability because- you Oh, you're saying I'm the common denominator here. Yeah, uh-huh. You oh, are oddly okay. the common denominator of every conversation you've ever had. Now, this is gonna sound really silly, but that had not occurred to me, Jess. <laughs> Yeah, every conversation, and including the listeners, every conversation you have ever been in, you are the common denominator of that collection of conversations. Hmm. Okay. At least one of them. At least one of them. And there is also guest selection. I tend to invite people on the show who probably have something to say about the topic, and so it ends up coming out. I am curious, from your perspective, what does that healthy... Man, if it's not a, it sounds like you're very much a dynamic equilibrium person. There's not just this static thing of where we're, we've got the right blend of authenticity and the right blend of vulnerability. And now we go forward with this. It's constantly kind of in flux and we're working through, but what does healthy look like from, from your perspective, from a leadership perspective, when we're talking about authenticity and vulnerability? Well, it certainly doesn't look perfect. Um, I'm kind of unanswering your question. But it does, it's not smooth and perfect and, uh, you know, a silky satiny sheen to it. Um, it's not 100% smiles, tens, five stars. Uh, but I do think that, and maybe I tend to blame capitalism, but maybe it's because that's how we've been rewarded that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about recovering perfectionist, etc. But it's nowhere close to that. It is um, scabbed knees and embarrassing moments and bombs and fails and constantly seeking rejection and celebrating your wins with other people and celebrating other people's wins with yourself. Um, even when those wins don't seem like wins, but they are to somebody. You know, it's uh, leadership is sitting in a conversation that you really actually would rather be someplace else. And while you're sitting in a conversation that you'd rather be, you're having an inner dialogue with why would you rather be someplace else than here? And finding out that it's usually because the other place is more comfortable than the here. And then committing to yourself to, okay, well, you're here, so let's just be presently uncomfortable. Like that kind of internal wrestling, I think, is what you're actually striving for. Um, we usually refer to it as kind of the journey to the destination. Um, and I, I think we're looking too far out and missing what's really happening in that inner dialogue. The, the present moment of being, how did you say, presently uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. That if we're in a place, maybe not every minute of every day, but if we're from a leadership perspective in that place of, present discomfort that we're probably in a good place in terms of what's happening with the team and our influence and what we're trying to build? Could be. I mean, it, I think it's very important to mention that there are scenarios where you're like, mm, there's a problem here. That's not what I'm talking about, right? Like you can be truly dis uh, uncomfortable. You can truly be in situations that you do not want to be in and you can opt out and not go to them. Um, it's, I believe our responsibility to notice the patterns of what we're opting out 
opting out of and why. And can you give us a practical, I, I hear what you're saying and I, I, it makes sense to me. Can you give us a practical example of, um, so, okay. I just thought of one. So, uh, there's a, a group of people that we were kind of always at conferences together. Um, you know, we would joke that they wouldn't put our vendor booths next to each other because we would talk to each other instead of other people. So our vendor booths were always on opposite sides of the room and we would just throw candy at each other. So then there would be like a lunch break or something. So we'd all go to lunch. Right. So it turned out that, uh, one day we were driving around in some town trying to figure out, uh, which restaurant to go to. And I would always say no to certain kinds of restaurants. And she would always say no to certain kinds of restaurants. And then she had coworkers. They're always in the back seat, and they never weighed in. So it was always between my preferences and the other person's name is Jessica as well, just to be confusing. <laughs> and um, turns out I hadn't really noticed, but I always say no to some kind of Asian restaurant. And when we finally talked about this, what what is that about? What's going on there? Is that I had significant bad experiences with bad Chinese food. And so I have ruled out a continent of food. Now, in ruling out a continent of food, I don't know the, or at least the time, I didn't know the difference between Chinese food, sushi, Thai food, Vietnamese pho. Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. All I knew was, nope, not doing that. And she had similar things. She had a bad sandwich experience. So anything sandwich related was like vetoed. So if it looked like a deli, it looked like a kind of Jason's Deli, McAllister's, those kind of places that would likely have stuffed potatoes or sandwiches, she would say no. Now okay. there's a lot of other kind of restaurants in the world, right? So- But you, between the two of you, you've ruled out quite a bit. Right, exactly. So we don't even realize that we have ruled out and we're in strange towns wherever the conferences are traveling to, right? So by subconsciously, me being like, nah, I don't like that place. Nah, I don't like that place. No, I, I was always pointing out the places that she would say no to. And um, she would point out places I would always say no to. So eventually we hated going to lunch together mm. because, and our, her coworkers couldn't stand this because we would drive around and spend all of the lunch break saying <laughs> no to 80% of the restaurants that we could find. Now this is a, I'm extrapolating this out way too far, but I think that you, me, listeners, etc., you are doing this all the time instead of just having a conversation about like, oh, it's one time. Oh, it's actually like three times, but I had really bad experience with Chinese food. Okay, let's break down what does that mean? Not what the bad experience is, but like what happened at the place? What was wrong with the food? Have you ever heard of Indian food? Right? Like, no, I hadn't. So now I'm all curious and excited. Like what? This is great. Let's go here. Um, I just recently I'm learning, right? So like I've branched out into the sushi world and the katsu that's on to, mm, there is some great food. <laughs> Who knew? Nobody yes, knew that. Yes, right? there is. So it turns out that she, her first like high school job was working at a blimpy, which is like a, where you make your own. Uh, yeah. The manager was terrible. She hated working there. It wasn't a very clean restaurant. There was nothing wrong with the sandwiches. Blimpy, do not come for me. But her particular franchise that she worked in was a very bad work experience. So she doesn't like delis. Okay. Now we know. Now we can make choices. But it took three years to get to the place where enough people were annoyed at us that we got annoyed 
And instead of blaming it on something else, we just hadn't had a conversation. To me, that is really the soul of a relationship, regardless of who's leading it. I'm using air quotes. And leadership is recognizing the pattern before it gets that bad. And taking responsibility there. Right. Okay, Jess, let's... The world's I'm, longest I'm, story. You did well, not... No, it's a, it's a fantastic... A, it's real life. B, it's a fantastic metaphor because, you know, my brain is wanting to take it all kinds of different directions. But so let's just take it from Kung Pao chicken and submarine sandwiches to, oh, I don't know, cancel culture or polarization or, you know, some of these issues that in today's culture can eat people alive and cause all sorts of issues. And they're definitely in the workplace. Uh, we, you know, sure. just talking with clients and things. I'm, Let's just choose. I'll let you guide us, but choose one of those and let's let's start talking about it. Well, the, the first place I think is important to start is uh, polarization is not always terrible and disagreeing with each other is not always awful. Right. So I'm not coming at this from some kumbaya kind of place. What I do think is important is that there is a very big difference between disagreeing with someone and killing them. There's a very big difference between finding something that you don't even know, like the source file. You can tell that I'm like a library dork, right? You don't know the first source file of the thing. So now you have heard it told, and on social media, this is much easier, right? But you've heard it told, retweeted, shared, etc., and you disagree with it. And so then you go find all the people who are like, wait, 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 what's going on? And you like get them fired so that they can't pay rent, they can't feed their kids now, right? Those things, I think, are a moral dilemma that we need to have as a society, a wake-up call, that we are destroying people's lives. Now, some of the people whose lives are being destroyed, it's in retribution of the lives they have destroyed. To me, that is a different conversation than cancel culture, so I'm not dismissing it, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. If we can take, but it needs to be mentioned because if I don't, then you're going to get doxxed and all that stuff because I didn't mention it, right? When we really talk about sh the monetization of shame, basically, is what we're talking about. And there's a great movie out right now. It's on Netflix. Uh, Monica Lewinsky's the executive producer called The 15 Minutes of Shame. But when we monetized ostracizing someone, voting them off the island, uh, canceling uh, uh, a, a piece of equipment that doesn't work, right? That's actually one of the first uh, references online of someone canceling somebody was a, uh, canceling something was a coffee maker that didn't work anymore. It's canceled. And whether that is imbibed from television shows that are no longer airing or whatever, wherever it came from, what has now happened, I believe, is we have lost our ability to formulate our own ideas and opinions of what it is that we disagree with. So submarines or Kung Pao chicken, I hadn't articulated why I was avoiding all the restaurants she was pointing out. She was taking it personally, but I was doing the same thing to her for the restaurants she was avoiding. And neither of us noticed this as a pattern. It took other people. Well, we don't really listen to and hear other people's experiences, we just dig our heels into our own that we haven't even taken responsibility for in the first place. So we have to unroll that. Can, can we just pause there? Because that whole 
and I am like, you can put me at the front of the line as a human being who digs their heels in on their position sometimes when I know that I'm right. And I know that I know that I'm right. And, uh, and, and I have, you know, I have a ton of communication training. I teach it. I'm all about finding and listening and, uh, finding the truth in the other side, all that. And still with all of that training and good intentions, just, I still sometimes find myself digging my heels in because I, I, I want to be right or it feels safe or it's comfortable. I don't know exactly why, but I know if I'm doing it <laughs> with a range of tools at my disposal to not do it, there is something in us that goes there. And I'm curious if you have perspective or experience on if, if leaders, is, somebody's listening to the show going, yeah, Jess, I hear you about not doing that. But yeah, I'm like, David, I, I do that sometimes. How, how can we help ourselves to take responsibility and not do that to the same extent? Well, so I have a flow chart and I'll send you the handout and you can put it in the show notes. And the middle chunk of the flow chart is the answer to your question. And it is the most frustrating part of my stance on this. So I have prefaced it. So don't get triggered people. Just kidding. Like a preference is going to prevent that from happening. But we often, and me included, right? Like I wrote a book about this, but that doesn't mean I don't do it on the daily. But we get defensive primarily when we get quote unquote feedback or pushback on something that we've said. And we don't actually know what our intention was because we just said something or we just did something without really thinking about it, without being 100% responsible for whatever that thing is. We released it. Somebody comes back to us with something that is absolutely not what we meant. We don't know what we meant, but it wasn't that. So then now we're in our right, wrong, winning, losing battle, except we're, we weren't res responsible enough to know what we meant in the first place. Mm. So then we're def we often are defensive because what are you talking about? That is not what I meant. That, that is already defensive. Right, but it doesn't matter, we're responsible for that impact. So if we knew what our intention was, that impact could still happen, but we'd be less defensive about it because we would know that's not what we meant. Mm, okay, Right. that makes so a lot of sense. I call this the Swiss roll. So um, any latchkey kids out there, you're welcome for this little memory lane. So Swiss rolls for people who don't know is barely cake little thin layer of it and then like some kind of white toothpaste caulking-esque icing and then it's rolled together dipped in not chocolate i recommend eating these things from the freezer but the intention and forming the message around that intention have to come together before you say it so evidence that you have not done this defensive in response that's one number two Think of all the conversations that didn't go the way that you wanted and you've saved the transcripts of those conversations and you replay those conversations over and over and over again and your lines get better and better and better and better. Their transcript parts never change, right? So I tell a story in my keynote about Brian Baxter breaking up with me. Middle school is coming up a lot today. So eighth grade, changed the color of the eyeliner but still had a headgear. Brian Baxter broke up with me in front of science class. No. I was mortified. As anyone would be. Right, except I didn't know we were dating. Oh. 
Uh-huh. So it could be foreshadowing into what kind of girlfriend I am. But I had absolutely no idea that we were dating. And he very dramatically broke up from me in, in front of class before class started. And then class started. So I couldn't even say anything or do anything. I had no idea what he was talking about. Everyone in class is now mad at me because I had the audacity to be broken up with by the one and only great Brian Baxter. Who, by the way, I have met again as adults and told him this story. And he thinks it's hysterical. But I did not know we were dating. This was my first boyfriend and first breakup. I had no idea. All at once. Yes. Now, my therapist has job security, but for like 30 plus years, I have replayed that in very embarrassing, humiliating moment sure. in my head. I am now a professional speaker and very sarcastic professional comedian. I have eviscerated him as an eighth grader a thousand showers, right? A thousand times this has occurred. All this, the great comeback lines. Right. Yeah. This poor ghost of an eighth grader. I have done this, but that is another example of when I clearly had not formed my message or my intention, and I'm still doing that work. Mm. But that's rooted in my ego because I'm trying to win and be right. You know, you're as you're as you're talking, it just makes so much sense. I'm thinking specifically of something that happened to me. Uh, I don't know, like five, six days ago. It's funny. There's an Adam Grant post. So this post you know, has two, has a quarter million comments and likes and whatever. One of them, Karen shared an article I had written on the topic, uh, which got a, some nice traction and attention. That's all good. One guy wrote, I find Die to be rather glib in this article. That was his word, glib, like G-L-I-B. And he went on and said, because I come from this and I don't see how that could be. And my reaction to that was actually like kind of a chuckle, like, well, that's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think is what you're saying. Now, I can get incredibly defensive about these things, but the reason I think in this case it wasn't is because of what you said. I knew what I had written and I knew my intention in writing it. And I knew what else needed to happen. Now, it doesn't mean it didn't come across as glib. And I want to look at my own writing and make sure that I'm not coming across that way. But it wasn't defensive. It was, hey, there's a conversation. Maybe I can learn something. I can also help him to learn something because he's incorrect. People do have this problem. That's where the article came from. I was writing to help them. And maybe that'll help him. You know, it, it left a lot of room for constructive conversation. I have not thought about this that way before, the way that you're talking about our intention and impact. Have we taken responsibility? Do we know what that was? If we do, that gives us the foundation for something constructive going forward, if I'm understanding you right. Yes, and not just responsibility, but 100% responsibility. So therapists like to say 50%, right? Because there's another person, but that's job security for them. How would you communicate differently if you were 100% responsible for what is coming out of your face or your fingers or your thumbs? 100% mm -hmm. responsible. You can still be wrong. You can still like, oh, didn't see that coming. You can still be totally unprepared for whatever kind of feedback you're gonna get. But that is freedom of speech. That is what protected speech is. Protected speech is speech that leads to more speech. So this polarization, not only are we not taking responsibility for what we're saying, not only are we definitely not listening to what it is, their life, the person that you're mad at, their life taught them to show up this way. 
there are people, it is very hard for me to do that because I'm just like, bye-bye, right? Like there's a lot of things. There's a lot of, my closest, my brother, for example, we have very different views on what are, I be, I like conspiracy theories and I can put them on the shelf and find them entertaining. I did not dedicate my entire life to them. That is hard. And these things aren't about making wins or easy this is just about being 100% responsible for what it is you are actually doing. And to me, that's leadership with a soul. Mm-hmm. That's not leading, that's not winning, it's not convincing other people to do it. It's just you, me, showing up, as I say, doing the best you can with what you have some of the time. Because it's better than nothing, never. And that's where the try to try comes in you know going back to your opening opening comments that that whole element of are we showing up are we trying to try and if we're doing that we're in the right place right the word is so amazing to me so i i i'm a very i love words so those of you that are listening like slow down right pull over get a pin so to try is some kind of cliche motivational crap, right? That I've heard my whole life. Just try to run, right? It is already a cardio workout. If I put these girls in a sports bra, I have already worked out. Now I don't want to go outside now, right? Now I got to like take a nap in order to get the damn thing off because that's cardio workout number two for the day. I don't want to try. Well, if you're entering this at, I don't want to try, that is a reality, right? Maybe it's my depression or maybe it's my anxiety. I don't want to is a viable position in how we show up. So then what's next? What's next is trying to try. So if I make a commitment to try to try, I might get to trying someday, but trying to try is the right movement. It's the right choice of something. So I try to try and it's exhausting. And you wanna know what's exhausting about trying to try is that it's trying. It's It's very trying. Do you see this word? I love this word so much. So Troy, you're saying that trying is trying. Though trying, trying to try is trying. And we'll let everybody unpack that. We're just going to pause for a moment. Let that linger. Okay. I like it. I like it. You know, uh, there's, we talk a lot about it around here around about confidence and humility, you know, as you were talking about some of those tensions that, that play together and, <clears throat> strikes me that in this whole conversation, the aspect of humility, forget everybody else. It's humility about ourselves and about what we do know. And that even owning a hundred percent, taking responsibility for a hundred percent doesn't mean that we know how everything's going to land, what else is going on out there, but that we're, we're taking the responsibility to say, yeah, I don't know it all. I, 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 I can't, I can't possibly, and that's okay. And full circle, there's, I, maybe these are my Ross Perot roots, but I often talk about the importance of riding two horses at once. One is of humility, which I think we've done a very good job of kind of pulling that out. You always do. But there is also that horse of ego, mm-hmm. right? What gave me as a sixth grader the audacity to ride my rainbow banana seat bike 
to Ross Perot's acreage, right? Where I distinctly remember this giant longhorn right at the fence, right by the doorbell. <laughs> I'd never even been to a house that had a doorbell. I wish I had a picture of the longhorn and the bike together. I mean, that's such a great image. Yeah. I don't have the longhorn, but I do have, cause my therapist said it's a good practice, but uh, that is a kid, a picture of me as a child with the banana seat bike. Do you see that? That is fantastic. And I love, oh, listeners, and if you can see this hat. picture. And a trucker hat. That's me. And a trucker hat. It's fantastic because it's this, you know, for age-wise, this little girl who moved Ross Perot to action. So without intentionally switching to the ego horse, I didn't know that I was not socially supposed to do that. I didn't even know that I had over-interpreted or misinterpreted, I don't even know, the speech The assignment. The assignment. The assignment was to interview somebody famous. Well, he'd been on the front page of the paper for like six weeks. That's famous, right? Like, I remember at some point before our presentations, the uh, girl who sat in front of me in the row, she was doing it on Tom Hanks. And um, my mother had a subscription to uh, People Magazine. And so I brought her a bunch of People Magazines that had Tom Hanks in them because she was using magazines. I was just being helpful or whatever. And so she's like, oh, thank you very much. What are you doing yours on? And I was like, Ross Perot. And she says, who's that? And I was like, he's just a guy who lives in town. And she's like, he's supposed to be famous. They're supposed to do something big. And what was funny about that is the movie Big was like right around then, right? Uh. So, um, yeah. So I really didn't know if I was doing the assignment correctly. And I didn't know that I was overdoing it. And I didn't know that it is not typical. I just, I just didn't know. So is that my ego horse? Like now owning my own business, my ego horse writes the copy for my website, right? My ego horse shows up on sales calls. My humility horse shows up in relationship building while I'm delivering the work, while I'm adjusting what I'm doing, while I'm looking at the scope of what I'm doing while I'm telling people I don't have the bandwidth to do something. Um, I'm firing clients because I don't wanna do that work anymore because I wanna take better care of myself this year. But both horses are needed. And I think this goes back to the sandwich story. The people in the back seat are the ones who are gonna tell you you've been on which horse too long. If so you why. have the awareness to pay attention and ask, either ask, or pay attention to what, what you're hearing. Oh, they'll let you know. But are you listening for that? Are you listening? Are you listening? Yeah. Are you curious about that? And I think that for me is the thing. If if I'm as a leader, and this is to me, that's the responsibility aspect of leadership, is I've got to take responsibility to ask. It, if I'm relying on passively relying on, well, I haven't heard anything. Well, Am I am I am I asking? Am I actually intentionally seeking out what's going to help us, help me, help the team, help our customer, whatever aspect of our work it is that we're talking about? Am I intentionally asking or am I, am I passively waiting for it to walk through my open door? And you can that works, right? Like I think it's a really important thing to state that people don't acknowledge, right? Is that like, I've been a professional speaker for 20 something years. We've known each other for 10 years. I have done almost no outbound marketing. It, it does walk through the door, right? So did you. 
But it's up to me to do something with that and to foster those relationships so that they will keep talking and more things will walk through the door. I just bought a CRM system, <laughs> right? My CRM system is legal pads and post-it notes. All the sales leaders listening are going, oh no. I know, right? But so, but what is great, I guess, is that if I get an email from Julia, my brain is like, oh, Julia, 2007, yellow sweater, mole, right? Like that is in my brain. And imagine what I could do with this one great life if my frontal lobe was not 20 years of customer information. That's and, where I'm at. And it just occurred to me, mole was in the overlapping Venn diagrams of foods that you both would eat, Jess and Jessica. That's true, that's true. I don't like mole spicy food though, so you have to be careful. <laughs> the, uh, I, I gotta go back to Swiss rolls for just a second because you know you were saying- There's a food theme. There's a food theme and it's fair because even before we started recording, we were talking about baking bread and, and things, but I mean, you went through this elaborate description of the Swiss roll and you know, and like I said, we, I was a latchkey child myself, vivid memories of the Swiss roll and which you, you on the one hand sarcastically loathe and on the other hand, best eaten out of the freezer and you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Actually mm -hmm. today at this age, better not eaten at all for me. But if yeah. I had to, I think frozen, you're, you're right. That would be the way to do well, it. And you bake so you could make Swiss rolls. I could if I wanted to. I'm, I'm just saying I smell a challenge. Mm -hmm. You smell a challenge. Oh, well, my it's wife good. will tell you that that's the way to get me to cook something. Ah, can you make <laughs> yeah, yeah, inside COVID when no one had a budget to do anything, um, we were all doing work. Uh, I don't like the word free, pro bono, pro bono work due to the times. And I eventually realized people know how to bake. So I just said, I'll do it for lemon bars. I'll do it for, I didn't even know these existed, but pecan bars, they're like pecan pie in little squares. Nice. What? Where? Yes, I will do that. Sure. You want a webinar? How about corner brownies? There right. was also some horse trading before we started recording for shortbread cookies, but we'll we'll get to that I later. I know it's where <laughs> I am a creature of habit, and if it works, it works. Persistent so, persistence. Yeah. So while I'm depressed, working for free in the middle of a global pandemic, and completely reliant on myself for all caloric intake because there's no buffet tables or waiters in my house, and I am not doing dishes, which means that I have to do the cooking. Um, I started having baked goods sent to me. Nice. Because I'm taking care of myself and back to the relationships I'm fostering with those clients. They knew that they were taking advantage of the situation and didn't have a budget. They were able to give something right now. I have a tin. I'm Southern. So you have to fill it up with something. Right. So I don't know how to cook. I'm not going to fill it up with food that I've attempted to cook. So one time I filled it up. Uh, I filled up the little tin with uh, sand from the sand dunes. Right, because they live somewhere in the middle, and a piece like, of the ocean. It's from the ocean, right? I I have access to that now. My partner is an environmentalist, so don't tell don't tell him that I stole the sand. Um, but I had another person who sent me. This is totally going to get cut out of the show. But I had another person who sent me jar soup. I did not know this was a thing either. So I had this huge mason jar, and you just dump it into boiling water, and it became soup. Uh, that got me through the winter, right? But then I would fill the jars up with uh, different things, right? Like 
pickles and other things that I could buy at the farmer's markets when they and started. Here's why this is not getting cut out of the show, because part of what we're doing are building relationships and these human moments of the reality of these things. That's part of what relationship is all about. It's not just the work we're doing. It's it's the mason jar soup and the stolen sand. Yeah. And I would say those of you that are listening, you either think I'm a complete moron or you are actually leaning in and more interested because you're learning who I am as a person. I'm not coming off as more unprofessional, right? And if you need to know, cause you have a high need to know like me, every single one of those people got their budgets back in 2021. I'm doing fine. And I know how to make soup now. <laughs> but to me, that's, I would rather be authentically me and people who don't like it don't work with me great there are some amazing other people you should work with but if you're down for darth vader jokes right here oh i like a good darth vader joke all right maybe at the end we'll get a good one to end on but before we get to i've got another actually i have a, a an infinitude of questions left but no time for all of them so we'll just do one or two but before those where can people find you where can we connect with you uh, pick up your book, all those good things. Jess, tell us where to, where to so, go. You can go to jesspettit.com. There are four T's in my last name and you won't believe me. So I bought all the spelling iterations. They all go to the same place. You can buy the book on ebook, audiobook, paperback in the usual suspect places, as well as your local bookstores, etc. And, um, yeah, that's about it. YouTube, I'm on all the social media things, barely. But as a classic Gen Xer, I'd find me on Facebook. Very active on Facebook. I can vouch for that. Jess Pettit. So Pettit, P-E-T-T-I-T-T. That's me. There you go. So Jess, uh, all right, we have covered a lot of ground. We have covered uh, cancel culture, polarization, Swiss rolls, uh, Ross Perot. We've been all over the all, all over the place. There is, and I'm going back away. This was one of the things that I heard you say, and this, I, I must've attended a presentation that you, you delivered at some point because the phrase stuck with me. And it's one that I think is so valuable uh, that I have recalled it over and over again. I've used it different ways. Uh, and the, the phrase was leave room for edits, which I hate to deliver the phrase and then ask you to explain it because you know, you got to have the gravity and the the mythos behind it, but it's such a beautiful sentiment and practical way to approach some of our life. So would sure. you mind expanding on that on sure. my behalf? So the session you went to 2007, um, I was part of a game show where I had to do a, a powerful point in under five minutes. That was the thing that you're probably referencing. And I talk about leave room for edits all of the time. And it is my antidote to diversity trainers saying you're never supposed to make judgments and assumptions. Now, I said that, you you can, we do make judgments and assumptions. It's, a not a, it's not about not doing it, it's about recognizing you do and working with the ones that you do. Now, the reason why we make judgments and assumptions is to feel safe and prepared. And that's what I mean when I say our life taught us to show up the way that it did. Doesn't mean we're right, but we will feel safe and prepared. So, with all this very wrong information that makes us feel safe and prepared, as well as all of the totally accurate and right information that makes us feel safe and prepared, 
what happens when we enter a space or meet a new person or answer the phone or get an email is we immediately write a story to make us feel safe and prepared and adjust accordingly. Doesn't mean we're right. So what all I do is suggest is that you write that story triple space with extra wide margins, know it's your story and leave room for edits. By leaving room for their truth, that means you're actively listening, you're curious, you're generous, you're vulnerable and you're authentic so that you can hear their truth and edit the document you wrote where you started from because your starting place might, could, might be able to be more accurate. And on that note, oh my goodness, Jess, thank you so much. That is, it is, it's as beautiful as I remember it and as necessary today as it ever has been. And the recognize that we have a story, nothing wrong with that. That's the way human beings are. We've got a story. It's, we're showing up, you said, to be safe and prepared. To feel safe and prepared, we write a story. And the, the work here is let's leave room for edits in that story and be open to other people's story and revise as needed. Yeah. And uh, the flow chart that I was talking about around forming your message and your intention is the middle of this better connections flow chart, page 192 of the book. I just put it into the chat so you can put it in the show notes. There's a whole chapter on leaving room for edits and the book itself really gets to you having space to figure out how you are, who and how are you in relationship. That sounds like a road trip question, but the reality is, is that it is your responsibility. It is my responsibility to find out what that answer is. And as soon as I think I know the answer, rinse, wash, lather, and repeat, because you do not have the ability to dig down into all of your unconscious impact once. It's an ongoing cycle. But that is good enough now. Good enough now. The title of Jess's book, if you didn't pick that up, good enough now. Jess, thank you so much uh, for being a guest, for sharing the wisdom, the stories, the, and, you know, you embody your message uh, in such a real way. It's one of the things I always appreciate about you. Well, I appreciate that. I have two jokes for you, maybe even a third if you have a bonus. Let's do it. Why did Anakin cross the road? Why? To get to the dark side. Why do you, what, or what do you call potatoes that have turned to the dark side? Darth taters? Vader tots. Oh, I okay. was so close. Vader tots. I'll give you one more. What did Emperor Palpatine say to Darth Vader when Vader couldn't figure out how to use chopsticks at the Chinese restaurant? See, we're staying on theme. It's on theme and I don't have a clue. Tell us. Use the fork. Of course. Oh, these are groaners. These are fantastic. I know. I Googled them just for you. Thank you nice. for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, Jess, it's been our pleasure. Hey, listeners, leave room for edits and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.